It's October 7th, 2018, and this is episode 378 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Christian Garcia submits his latest correspondence segment from on the ground in hyperinflating Venezuela. Then, after the break, I'm joined by Andreas Antonopoulos and Stephanie Murphy to dig into the thought behind and coming adoption of Schnorr signatures within the Bitcoin protocol. Enjoy the show. Vamos a arrancar con gaitas el programa Los Domingos con Maduro. Rincón Morales. Did you know that Nicolás Maduro had a TV show? It's called The Sundays with Maduro. And it's as boring as it sounds. It's pretty much just him talking. These programs are never worth watching. But the show of December 3rd of 2017 was special. Three hours into his show, Maduro was just finishing talking about the dangers of having an economy dependent on the oil production when he throws this. Venezuela va a crear una criptomoneda, el petromoneda, el petro. Venezuela will create a cryptocurrency, the Petrocoin, the Petro. Maduro says that they want to bypass the U.S. sanctions by creating a cryptocurrency that cannot be blocked by any government. This Petro would be backed by Venezuela's reserves of oil, natural gas, gold, and diamonds. He doesn't talk specifics, but what he says is enough to get the world talking. The first government-backed cryptocurrency ever. The reason Maduro didn't give much details is because he didn't have them. The company that would be in charge of the project, the Social Loss, hadn't even started the project. Its employees were learning about the Petro from the same live transmissions as anyone else. The Petro is a story about scams within scams. You'll see what I mean. I took a deep dive into the development of the Petro talking to people close to the project to find out what the hell really happened there. I spent days trying to unravel this, combining info from the media and the people I talked to. This is the story of the Petro, the coin that couldn't be. First, let's talk about Gabriel Jimenez. He's the founder of The Social Loss, a Venezuelan tech company. His company started working on the Petro literally a day after the announcement. He already knew he'd be getting the contract. That Gabriel, or Gabo, is a shady character. The Associated Press actually ran a profile on him because he was the self-proclaimed creator of the Petro. He seems like a legit guy, he's a lawyer, and even has studies in the U.S. During an internship in Washington for the U.S. representative Ileana Ross Lethinen, he organized and participated in protests pledging the Obama administration to sanction Maduro's government. I really like the profile AP made of him, but they forgot one key aspect. Gabo really likes money, like, a lot. When he came back to Venezuela, he started working with the social laws, developing tech projects related to cryptocurrencies. At the same time, he was getting involved knee-deep with high-ranked government officials, especially a guy called Carlos Vargas. Shortly after the Petro announcement, Maduro creates a new division of the government, the Superintendents of Crypto Assets. And who does he appoint as the head of the department? Mr. Carlos Vargas. 
they would deal with everything related to cryptocurrencies in Venezuela, including making a registry of all the miners out there and the creation of the Petro. Carlos Vargas is Gabriel's buddy. Gabriel even has a relationship with Carlos's assistant. Gabriel told his employees that the social loss has gotten the contract for the whole project. The marketing, including raising the funds and the actual development of the technology. Leaked documents by investigative journalist Maipor Petit confirmed that, but despite what the contract said, the government hired a different company for the development. A Russian company called Aero Trading. Gabo said to his employees that the social loss wouldn't get paid for it right away. Instead, the company would receive 7.6% of all Petros once everything was up and running. 7.6% of all Petros would have been a lot of money, almost $500 million. Assuming they'd managed to fix the price of the Petros to the oil barrels. Gabo must have gotten dollar signs for ice after hearing those numbers because he forgot his political activism days in the US and was proudly given interviews as the father of the Petro. Besides the Petro, they were offered a license for a cryptocurrency exchange in Venezuela. These exchanges were planned to be the new gatekeepers of all the money that entered Venezuela. And given that the government was planning to emit just a handful of these licenses, they were extremely valuable. The social laws, the Russian of trades, and every other corrupt government official was after these licenses. The team advances as much as they can without actually having a working product to promote, or even a defined concept. It was all based on what Maduro said on that first announcement. They start with the image, the white paper, and the web page. But the developers at Aero Trading weren't making any progress for some reason. El Petro. Two months have passed. It's February 20th, the day of the launch, and the only thing they had to show for was marketing material. They all dressed up nicely for the televised event, but it didn't matter because the launch was a huge flop. The project was rushed to meet the launch date of February 20th. The hastily put together web page for the Petro wasn't working on day one. During the registration, you had to wait for an email that didn't arrive. At the end, all Aero Trading had done was to create a token called Petro in the NEM platform and take the social losses white paper and turn it into a garbled mess full of broken Spanish and government propaganda. In the final version of the white paper, at least the grammar was corrected, but it kept the propaganda nonsense. For example, it said that the Petro was Chavez's idea. Both the Russians from Aero Trading and Gabriel from the Social Laws appeared in the televised event signing contracts with Maduro and the superintendent of crypto assets, Carlos Vargas. The moderator said that Aero Trading was in charge of developing security measures for the Petro. Since the marketing team at the Social Laws didn't have a grasp of the technology underlying the Petro, the information they showed wasn't specific enough, and sometimes it was even contradictory. The contract the reporter Maybor Petit leaked said that the socialists would receive $500,000 up front, plus a bunch of commissions. There was no mention of the 7.6% of Petros in the contract. That reporter, Maybor, also leaked a communique from the socialists to Carlos Vargas. 
They stated that the company was using their own resources to keep the project going, but that they needed the 500k stipulated on the contract to keep the project going. According to the contract, they had to raise $250 million in the two months after the launch of the Petro. Otherwise, they wouldn't receive any commissions. And to do that, they would open offices at Tokyo, Singapore, London, and San Francisco, and put Petro conferences all over the world. They also had to list the Petro in at least 18 exchanges. In the communication to Carlos Vargas, they also stated that they couldn't advance too much in the promotion if they didn't have anything to promote. The other team, handling development, still hadn't done anything. They were running out of funds, but the company had other projects beside the Petro. Gaba tried to get investors for those other projects. He got some backers, but as of today, none of these other projects have seen the light of the day. At one point, they were getting into debts to pay for other debts. I mean, what else could they do? They were being scammed by the Venezuelan government in the development of a cryptocurrency that was, by itself, a scam. The government says that the 5 million barrels back in the Petro are in Ayacucho 1 area, underground. Brian Ellsworth from Reuters went there and found no oil companies whatsoever extracting it, just a barren field. And to the best of my knowledge, not a single line of code of the Petro has ever been written. The Petro simply doesn't exist. The people at Aero Trades left, and the owner, Fedor Borodotsky, said in an interview to Armando Info that the Venezuelan government didn't pay them a single dime for the time there, just like the social laws. He also said that the government didn't have the money to develop the whole project for the cryptocurrency. No wonder they weren't submitting any work. After Aero Trades left, the development was in charge of another team, but that one didn't submit any work either. It all fell apart, and Carlos Vargas, the superintendent of cryptocurrencies and Gabo's body, was fired just six months after his appointment. We're in October now. The closest thing we have to the Petro cryptocurrency are the tokens created in the NEM that would be swappable by Petros in the future. The government has started bringing up the Petro again, but just as a unit of account, and not as an actual cryptocurrency. They are fixing the prices of products and salaries to specific amounts of Petro. For example, the minimum wage is now half a Petro, or half an oil barrel. They say that they are strengthening the value of the Bolivar that way. I live here. It's not working, trust me. I still have a lot of missing parts of that story, because I still don't know for sure why there was no development for the Petro. But here's a theory, and take this with a grain of salt. Someone with a lot of power didn't want the Petro to happen. That someone negotiated to have their people in charge of the development and made them stall on the work. I mean, if you think about it, launching a cryptocurrency that redesigns the way the exchange system works in Venezuela, it's complicated. This is a dictatorship. There are different groups inside the government, each with different power quotas. A group that is benefiting from the current currency controls has incentives to resist and even sabotage attempts of changing it. Sounds crazy, but those different government factions are the reason this government never takes any corrective economic measure. They can't disrupt the delicate balance of power quotas 
that keep the corrupt officials happy. We'll probably never know what's happening to Chavismo internally, but we know one thing for sure. Whatever it is, it's making them so dysfunctional that they can't even run a cryptocurrency scam properly, let alone a whole country. All right, so after I wrote this, there was a development of the Petro story. It's October, and they launched it again. That first launch was the launch for the pre-sale, but this is the, the real launch. And they did a televised event, again. The web page didn't work, again. It was a disaster, again. And I watched it live, again. Maduro said, and I quote, Starting from today, the Petro will be commercialized in the six most important exchanges in the world. It was a lie. No one is exchanging in Petros. For the second launch, they presented a different white paper. Now the Petro will be backed not only by oil, but by gold, iron, and diamond too. The white paper explains that having the cryptocurrency of the whole nation fluctuating with the oil barrel is a bad idea. So they added those other commodities to the mix to make it more stable. It will start at $60, just as before. But now the oil fluctuations will affect only 50% of the price, and the other 50% will be affected by the other commodities. This doesn't mean you would be able to redeem the petrol for oil, gold, iron, or diamond. Actually, you won't be able to redeem the petrol for anything. Those commodities are used only to calculate the price they sell you the Petro at. The big change is that the Petro will function with its own blockchain and not in the NEM platform. Let's see how that goes. The page is completely redesigned, but it doesn't work. I tried downloading the Windows wallet and it's just a zip file containing an empty folder called wallet. I downloaded the PDF manuals on how to use the Windows wallet to see at least how the program would look like. But the manual is just a file with a single page with the phrase user manual windows and the logo of the Petro. The Linux version is the same, a single page with the phrase user manual windows and the logo of the Petro. They presented a link to the blockchain explorer on the launch and they gave Maduro a laptop for him to symbolically turn on the blockchain. He pressed enter and a video started. It was a 10 seconds countdown for the Petro to go live. When it reached zero, people in the live transmission were applauding. The Petro was live. But it's been a week since that countdown has ended and the blockchain explorer still doesn't work. And uh, as a side note, the English version of the webpage is just hilarious. It has as much broken English as it has broken links. Some people have managed to download the Linux wallet, and right now it doesn't work. It opens, but it doesn't connect to anything. It turns out it is a clone of a Dash wallet. In fact, the whole Petro project might be. In the white paper, there is even a diagram on how the blockchain works that was stolen straight from the Dash documentation. The giveaway was that the diagram mentioned the DOFs, which are the smallest unit of Dash. This will keep going. I'll keep you posted. Maduro said that on November 5th, everyone will be able to buy the Petro with Bolivars. That means he'll probably do a third launch. This was Christian Garcia. I'm getting some popcorn. Thanks for listening.
EasyDNS is a domain name provider and registrar that shares our values. Flexibility, free speech, and control without lock-in. EasyDNS helps you meet your individual needs as the Swiss Army Knife for domain names since 1998. Outspoken defenders of privacy, due process, and great service, the folks at EasyDNS are long-term, enthusiastic supporters of the Bitcoin movement as well as this program. Please support our sponsor and head over to EasyDNS.com where you can handle all your domain needs and pay with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, or Ethereum. So when you're thinking about domains or hosting, think EasyDNS.com. Schnorr signatures have finally formally started their path towards adoption within the Bitcoin protocol. Andreas, uh, I just want to kind of get up to speed a little bit. What are Schnorr signatures and what are we currently using in the Bitcoin protocol that they will replace? We're currently using the Elliptic Curve Digital Signature Algorithm, or ECDSA, which is a specific way of doing digital signatures with elliptic curves, but not the only way. Now, ironically, and this is news to me, but I, I watched this fantastic presentation by Dr. Peter Wool, who's one of the core developers and probably the lead developer working on Schnorr signatures. ECDSA, or DSA specifically, was invented as an alternative signature mechanism because Schnorr signatures were under patent until recently. And so open systems couldn't use Schnorr signatures because they were encumbered by patents. Now those patents have expired. And so now we can use the predecessor to DSA, which was Schnorr. And Schnorr signatures have some unique characteristics that make them better in many ways than the ECDSA algorithm we use today in Bitcoin. So when we're talking about signatures, we're talking about literally like the low-level function within uh, the Bitcoin protocol where transactions and messages and things like that are signed. And so we were doing it with the ECDSA, and now we're transitioning to do it with Schnorr. So is Schnorr better? Is that why you know we would have used this had it not been under patent, but instead we had to you know use this alternative technology? Or kind of what was the was was were the patents the reason why we didn't use it? And is this just a generalized upgrade? Or are there any sort of trade-offs that we should be thinking about? That's really the, the case, yeah. So Schnorr signatures are better because they have certain quirks in the way the mathematics plays out. So digital signatures are uh, numbers. They're just numbers. Uh, the way you calculate these numbers is in such a way that someone else can verify that you calculated this number with knowledge of the private key without actually revealing this private key. So they can verify that you have possession of the private key when you made the signature. So essentially, a digital signature algorithm is just a mathematical function that gives you a number as a result of applying the private key to a message in such a way that someone else can verify that that number reveals you knew the private key when you applied to this message without knowing the private key themselves. So there's two aspects to it, signing, that's one function, and verifying, which is a function that allows you to confirm the signature without knowing the private key. Use a different set of equations, which is the technique that Schnorr developed in Schnorr signatures. On the same elliptic curve, you can get the same effect, which is proving that you know the private key. That's the whole point of the digital signature. But Schnorr signatures exhibit certain characteristics that make them better. The first of these is the ability to do aggregation. 
what that means is that if you want to sign several different messages with several different private keys and produce several different signatures with Schnorr, what you can do is you can produce an aggregate signature, which is the equivalent of if you had signed the aggregate message with the aggregate of all of the private keys. So this is one of the characteristics of Schnorr signatures. To explain it in a better way, think of it this way. It's as if the sum of all signatures is the same as if you applied one signature with the sum of all private keys on the sum of all messages. And I'm using sum in a broader sense. It's not the traditional arithmetic operation of addition, but it's the equivalent in elliptic curves. Does that make sense? Sort of. Sorry. How about I dive in with a specific example? Yeah, that would be great. Now, you know in Bitcoin, a transaction may have several inputs, and each one of those inputs has its own signature. So let's say you have a transaction that is spending little chunks of coins from four different addresses that your wallet controls, all of the loose change that you had, and is paying it somewhere, right? So in a traditional Bitcoin transaction, you'd have four inputs in your transaction, let's say to aggregate all of this loose change you had. You will need to apply four signatures with four different public keys against the same transaction message in order to spend that transaction. With Schnorr signatures, you can apply one aggregate signature to all four inputs, which means that you use one quarter of the space in the transaction. Okay, so bulk signing, basically. Okay. Now, take that one step further and think about you have a block that has a thousand transactions in it, signed by different people with different private keys on different transactions. What if you could aggregate all of the signatures on all of the transactions and only propagate that as part of your block verification? Someone can simply then validate that the whole block signature is valid for all of the transactions that are in that block by summing up all of the transactions and all of the public keys and counting once. And if it's valid, that's done, and they know that that means that all of the signatures were valid. If it isn't, they'll have to check each one independently, but that's a very rare case in Bitcoin. Most of the time, what you could do is aggregate all the signatures in one transaction to one signature, and then aggregate all the signatures across all of the transactions in a block into one signature for the whole block. Okay, well, that makes a lot more sense. So this sounds like something that should actually have performance uh, improvements relative to what we're currently doing. And it seems like something where, especially in the case of like, you know, when Coinbase sends a transaction that has, you know, 25 different inputs in it, and it's going to 25 different people on the outside of it. Are you saying that that becomes much more easy to validate because you can treat the whole thing and validate it as one, as opposed to needing to go through and validate each individual input? Yes, not only that, but you're transmitting one twenty-fifth of the data in that particular case. So it optimizes bandwidth, it optimizes disk storage, it, it optimizes blockchain capacity or block capacity, it optimizes verification speed. But that's only the start of it. So here's another scenario. Let's say you're trying to do a multi-sig between, let's say, five participants. So you're doing, let's say, a five of five multi-sig. Today, in order to do that with traditional multi-sig, you'd have to apply five signatures, which correspond to the five public keys that are known for the multi-sig. And then you'd have to verify all five signatures in order to confirm that multi-sig. 
Well, with Schnorr signatures and a construct invented by, I believe, Andrew Polster, Greg Maxwell, and Peter Wool called Musig, you can do a compound multi-signature, which basically means the five parties come together and they produce one signature that represents the aggregate of all of their five public keys. And you validate that as a single signature on the multi-sig, which is the unanimous vote, if you like. The unanimous case of a multi-sig is a special case, and you can do it with one signature that's constructed jointly by all five participants. So multi-sig now becomes a one-signature operation. That's step one. Now imagine if this, from the public perspective was indistinguishable from a single payment where a single party signs with a single public key and a single signature, which means that you can turn all multi-sig to look exactly the same as a straightforward one-signature payment transaction on Bitcoin. That would be a big privacy improvement. Now imagine that you can do that not just for the unanimous case of a five-of-five multi-signature, but you can do it for any type of monotonic Boolean function, meaning this key or, these two ands, this one or, these three plus a time lock of 30 minutes and these other two or, this hash lock and these five keys. So any combination of or, and, or, and, or, and of any group of keys can be represented now by a single aggregate signature, which shortcuts all of that. And you can make all of those look like a simple payment. So your use of smart contracts effectively and complex payment solutions is invisible because it all looks as if a single payment was made with a single signature by a single public key. All right, now I'm sold. <laughs> so I have a couple of questions, Andreas. Does this require a hard fork to implement? No, it requires a soft fork and the test code's already been written up and submitted as a BIP. Okay. So, I mean, and I know we've talked about this on the show before, like basically why hasn't it already been implemented? For a number of reasons. First of all, a lot of the research is very, very new. The MUSIC construct, which is a massive optimization of multisig for Schnorr, was only invented about a year ago and written about. The implementation details were still being hashed out recently. Okay. Some of these new formulations, the hiding a multisig and making it look like a single payment, which is called taproot, and the equivalent property called graftroot, these are two new inventions. They're barely a few months old since they were first discussed. Now it's a matter of hashing out the details of creating an implementation that is both flexible enough, generic enough, and efficient enough that it can encompass all of these privacy enhancements and verification enhancements. And then the next question was really the stumbling block or major decision point was, do these get launched as a series of changes that are discrete from each other? And if so, what they do is they create a challenge whereby people who try to use the enhanced privacy mechanisms are obvious, they're visible. Or do you do all of them in one batch of changes so that you can immediately go to the model where your complex multisig looks like a single signature payment? In which case, the people using these enhanced privacy features are indistinguishable from those who are not, which then makes the privacy even more powerful. The decision that seems to have come out of this is 
to deploy all of these features together so that privacy is not something that is distinguishable from those not using privacy. And that's a great idea, in my opinion. Now, Taproot, Graftroot, and Schnorr Music are going to be deployed at the same time with a single soft fork. When is that going to be? When it's ready, as is the common slogan in open source. Okay. I would expect that we're probably no more than a year out from that moment. Now, of course, when the technology is deployed on the protocol level, that doesn't mean it's available in a wallet that you can use with a nice user interface. That may take another year until it's broadly usable. But the feature should be added to Bitcoin and create a, a significant increase in privacy, optimizations for scalability, and better multisig probably within the next year. Something to look forward to. Is there a limit to how much data can be condensed or aggregated with a Schnorr signature? No, you can aggregate an infinite number of signatures down to one. Okay, so could you go a level up from validating a single block? with a Schnorr signature and validate a group of blocks or perhaps like a whole blockchain? Theoretically, yes. And that's part of the discussion here is there's some relationship between this and the whole Mimblewimble approach to doing a block compression that is rather interesting. But I think the discussions are like, from a practical perspective, how much space do you save if you do this within a transaction? How much more space do you save if you do this within a block? And then can you do this across blocks? And one of the things you've got to realize is that you have to do it in a way that doesn't break backwards compatibility for existing clients or that allows this to be an opt-in feature rather than a mandatory feature that everybody has to follow. Well, and that actually was going to be my final question, which is, I mean, it seems like these are dramatic improvements relative to the current state of the technology, but I currently use multisig now. And when this does roll out, does that mean, you know, as you said, there aren't going to be wallets that have integrated this because it's a fundamentally different way of doing multisig. So those, those old solutions will still work and there'll be a transition period where there's at least both technologies. Do you think that we'll continue to see traditional multisig or traditional solutions or are these things really effectively the next generation of that, and we'll see these things become obsolete over time. We're currently in the fourth generation. Of, this would be the fourth generation of multisig, and the previous three generations are still very much in, in action. So the first generation of multisig is what's called naked multisig, which is multisig without pay-to-script hash. So it's multisig without a three address, but where you put the entire script in the UTXO. That's very rare nowadays. You'll probably not see it. Then you've got P2SH wrapped multisig, which is what most of us use, which is where the multisig address starts with a three. That's the one we're most familiar with. Most people haven't noticed that there's now a new form of multisig, which is multisig with a SegWit address which is pay to witness script hash multisig, which is a, a BC1 address with a new SegWit style address. And that's not even widely spread because SegWit is so new, people haven't yet been doing SegWit multisig, but it's beginning to appear now in a few wallets. And so Schnorr multisig would be the fourth iteration and you still have the previous three will be in operation. So it's a rolling window, if you like. So is this the first non-controversial basic upgrade that we've talked about on Let's Talk Bitcoin? I feel like it's been a long time since we've talked about anybody doing anything to the protocol where there wasn't some sort of minority report that really thinks it's a bad idea for one reason or another. 
Is there any pushback against this or is it just broadly supported? I'm sure there's pushback against this. There's no such thing as a non-controversial upgrade to the Bitcoin protocol. Of course, this is a non-mandatory opt-in feature that's backwards compatible so that you don't have to validate or use this feature if you don't want to. But that doesn't remove it from being controversial. I mean, in a world where vaccines are controversial, I don't think we'll ever see a Bitcoin improvement that isn't. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Christian Garcia, Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited for radio by Adam B. Levine and features music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. For questions or comments, write adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.